increased rates of mental health problems, anxiety, depression, alcohol misuse or abuse, marijuana abuse, suicidal behaviors. Does that sound like the life that we should be creating and encouraging women to have? Well, friends, uh, you know, monkeys are our closest relatives. Obviously, hopefully you know that. Um, and so because of that, they're starting to do experiments where they are exposing monkeys to the Internet to just see what happens. And recently, two monkeys, not just one, a, a male and a female couple of monkeys, they all on their own opened a joint Amazon account. So they're now primates. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 109. It's so good to be back with you. As always, a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast, follow it wherever you're listening to it, um, but especially to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it because it helps other people find it. Uh, highest compliment you can pay this podcast is to share on your social media feeds. You can tag us on Instagram at Mana Food for Thought, all spelled out, or on Twitter at ManaF4T with the number four. And you can visit our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as find all of our other content and become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 a month. Get access to exclusive content. You can do that all on our website as well. Good to be back with you. Um, and a lot of things have been going on in the news. I don't know if you knew, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. But before we do that, let's get into Joy, Junk, and Jesus. I think we need like a filler here, like Joy, Junk, Jesus, like one of those, what's that called? A... Uh, uh, a raz? What's that called? Uh, there's a word for it. Uh, oh, man, that's going to bother me. Anyway, joy. My joy is my... So I've had high cholesterol for quite a while. And um, when I first lost a bunch of weight, you know, I lost 90 pounds a few years ago uh, or over the span of, of a first year. And it kept, have kept um, that off for the most part or converted it into muscle um, over the years since. And so that's been great. Uh, my cholesterol dropped really well in the beginning, but then it started to rise again. And it wouldn't go back down. It actually got higher than it was even before. And so I was on medicine. Doctors didn't really know what was going on. I got off the medicine. That didn't help. So anyways, I started going to the gym about three or four months ago and got on a new medicine. And those things combined cut my cholesterol in half. I'm down to almost as low, if not lower, and all the things that need to be low when I first lost weight and good things are getting higher. And so all of that is good. So uh, really grateful for that. That's been a joy and um, going to the gym and enjoying it. In fact, today I got, I got done with the gym and I got in my car and I was really like sweating today at the gym for like more than usual. And I sweat quite a bit at the gym, but I got in my car and I was just so hot and overheated from sweating. And it was very cool in my car. And I looked at my arms and my body, my arms were steaming. Like you could see smoke coming off my body. It was crazy. I felt like the human torch. It was kind of cool. But anyway, uh, the gym and being healthy, joy. Junk is the, the other side of that. So if anyone knows how to fix this for me, if anyone's like a nutritionist or an expert in this like food stuff, could you like help me out here? Because I did intermittent fasting for a long time and I still kind of do it. But that programmed me to, when it was time to eat, I could eat as much as I needed to, to get full. And I would do kind of a ketogenic type of diet, you know, eating healthy fats and stuff like that, but still some carbs. Anywho, as I've started going to the gym, I wasn't going to the gym during all of that. I've needed to eat more and needed to eat earlier. So I've had to widen that window. But the problem is my mind and my body are kind of programmed to crave once I start eating, like don't stop. 
And so I am like insanely hungry, like all of the time. And it is so annoying. And the only time before that I would kind of eat all day was on like a cheat day, like a Saturday when I could eat like kind of whatever I wanted. And so now every day, if I'm eating earlier and eating for a wider, you know, window of time, my body feels like every day is a cheat day. So every day I'm craving terrible stuff. I want to eat right away. I want to eat. a. It's just like, it's not good. So I've like messed up my, <laughs> my body. So pray for me. And if you know how to fix that, that'd be great. I have, I have pretty good discipline. I'm doing pretty well, but like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of frustrated with that at the moment. Always hungry. And as a result, always feel like tired and irritable and hangry like all day. Anyway, my Jesus moment. Um, I don't know. I've just had a feeling that like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Like there's a lot of cool and exciting things that are coming down the pipe for our parish. We're getting a new pastor, a lot of energy around that. I'm getting a lot of energy thinking about what the possibilities are, but I'm also looking long-term at like, you know, what's potentially next for me. And it's just all very positive. And lately I've just continued to get a lot of great affirmations on this podcast, on the ministry that I do, especially the Bible study that I run and the Catholicism 101 program that I want at our parish and just a lot of people saying really nice things about it. And that's that's great. It's not about me. It's all for the glory of God. But, you know, when we're living into our gifts and our charisms and we know what they are, it glorifies God. And it's not, you know, proud to say that, you know, we're good at those things. So that's what God is calling us to do. It's very humbling that God has, like, given me this particular set of gifts to do this ministry and for it to just be going so well. Because it's obvious every time that I do it that I, like, it's almost like I black out and he just, like, takes over. And I have these moments, I've talked about this before, where I'm like having an out-of-body experience where I'm like listening to myself talk and being like, wow, that sounds really good. Like, where's that coming from? And I have like no clue. And it's weird that my, it's just clear that the Holy Spirit is taking over. So um, yeah, that's been my Jesus moment, feeling like really secure in where I am and like just God is with me. And no matter what happens, like I know he's leading me in a good direction. And that being said, um, another Jesus moment, potentially for you, maybe not, but you know, a, a good thing for those of us who um, have pro-life values and stances and um, or try and mitigate any kind of legislation that goes against that. Um, there's a draft opinion that was leaked. You've probably heard about it. It's been everywhere about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, I know abortion is a very, very sensitive topic. I've spoken about it before. We've done a previous episode on it. You can go back and listen to um, all about like different arguments for abortion. That was when Jenna and I were both co-hosting the podcast uh, and she did a lot of research on that. But I kind of want to revisit this issue and, and more so talk about like how do we handle this cultural moment as Christians? How do we enter into conversations and what might we do to really just bring grace into these different places because people obviously disagree with this. They're upset by it. Um, you know, they want, they think abortion is a, a right and <clears throat> think that this is a very like right wing religious conservative attack to oppress women and to have control over their bodies and to, you know, make people um, under the thumb of an old patriarchal way of living. And that is not at all like even where people from a religious standpoint are coming. Well, I would say, the people that I know. So there are probably people who are from coming from a religious standpoint who might want that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll grant that from different, um, much more fundamentalist religious traditions. But I think this is an opportunity for us to really listen because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are very angry. And I think recognizing that, yes, we have a responsibility to stand up for the truth, to stand up for, for life, 
to give a voice to the voiceless, especially those who are unborn, they cannot speak for themselves, um, to ensure that the dignity of all human life is being honored and respected. And that includes the dignity of the mothers who have been affected by this, and women and men who have been affected by loss or tragedy of abortion in their own life, whether willingly or unwillingly, you know. Um, so I think, and I'm one of those people, I've, I've shared my story before about how abortion has affected my past when I was in high school and how I have a, a daughter in heaven because of it. And so um, I know how sensitive this can be and I know how high emotions can run and I think I just I want to present a um, an approach to talking about this issue um, and some tips on how to how to do that in a way that might be more effective. And so, as I alluded to before or said before, um, I think we need to make sure we are listening. And so if you encounter someone who disagrees, you know, on this issue or who's like, you know, spouting all this stuff online, saying this is a travesty or something like that. To be able to like directly message them, this is a thing, I should caveat all of this by saying like social media is the worst possible place or online for these conversations to happen. Now there are some people who are very gifted at allowing those to happen, but I think the best approach to doing this online is always to privately message and then to try and arrange a time in which you can talk on the phone or meet in person. Now you may be trying to evangelize strangers online and doing this, and if so, God bless you. Like I don't have the ability to do that, and I think it very easily turns into like vitriol, and you know, you, it's easy to say awful things and to just throw back like you know, comment after comment. And some of these people are very equipped; they've got like things copy and pasted, and they're ready to go. And if you're not super well researched on this, even if you answer a point, they're just going to throw more emotional language at you because the the kind of nonverbal communication and human element of the conversation has been taken away because we're doing this online. And so the more you can bring that human element back into it and remind each other, like we are two people who don't believe things for bad reasons. Like we have good reasons to believe what we believe and we want to seek to understand one another and listen. Uh, it makes it a much more palatable conversation. Yes, it still might be angry. You know, it still might be heated. And I think that's okay. You know, um, you're never going to enter a situation where like it, it's a very hypersensitive topic where two people completely disagree. Both are like, yes, we can completely have a civil conversation. You know, I think I think that's the goal. But I don't know. I was trying to imagine like if if this law was about like um, overturning the freedom of religion, which wouldn't happen because that's directly in the Constitution and the right to abortion is not directly in the, in the Constitution, which is is part of the whole reason why this is happening. But let's just say that were the case. And I were outraged about this. Obviously, we were uh, people who were religious were outraged about this. And the other side was trying to be reasonable and say, like, hey, let's just have a civil conversation about this. And I'll listen to where you're coming from and you'll listen to where I'm coming from. I would be like, no way. Like, you know, there's no way. Like, we can have a civil conversation about this. I would be so, like, irate. And so I think, like, we have to acknowledge that. That, like, yes, we might be able to control the setting, but to do so in a way that's not, like, forcing it to tell the other person they have to be civil or to calm down because they may be very heated. We may be very, you know, heated about this issue. But to say in order to communicate more effectively and not have this like long back and forth on texts and or DMs or something cuz that just takes forever and forever to read and and it's just it's it doesn't it's it doesn't contribute to a healthy debate or conversation or even an argument. Um let's just see if we have a time to do this on the phone or in person. Um, I think that is a more effective means of doing this. And when you do, to then listen. And even if it's hard to listen, even if it's angry, even if it's, you know, some vile language or whatever, but really listen, like, 
what do they believe and why do they believe what they believe about it and ask questions you know clarifying questions even if it's like oh all you religious people you know like you know this is what you wanted and you're trying to and, and to be able to ask like well is this a is this a religious law is this about religion is this about you know a conservative stance on abortion and really if you know the issue if you know what's going on it's not it's not. And I know there were many pro-life people fighting for this for a variety of reasons that brought it to the ballot. But the reason why they have um, uh, the ability, momentum to do this is because there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. And the way that our government works, if you remember your high school civics, government economics classes, we have three branches to our government. We have the legislative branch, which is the House and the Senate. Their job is to create laws. Okay. The executive branch, the presidency, their job is to execute the law, meaning like making sure that it is being um, adhered to and um, doing certain presidential actions or whatever, you know, might need to be done in order to allow that law to come into effect. The role of the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, is to interpret the law. So there's been a big problem over previous decades where there's been what's called legislating from the bench where the judiciary, the Supreme Court, has said certain cases like are viable when they don't have any, any uh, basis in the Constitution. And, and people have tried to bend certain arguments using certain rights to privacy, things like that, and certain amendments. But if it's not inherently stated there, you can't enact something into law from the judicial part of the, the government. You have to do that through the legislature. And in the Constitution, it says if, if something is not part of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, then the right to legislate that law or to determine if it should be a law or not goes to the states. It's not a federal matter because we live in a republic of states. We live in the United States of America, but it is a, it's a democratic republic. And so we have a democracy. We come together and we vote for things on a federal level, but we are a republic of 50 states and each of those states has its own government it has its own legislative body executive body and judicial body there's a state court there's a state you know governor there's a state legislature and so they have those same roles to enact those laws because the people who live in certain states are different and face different issues and so the same laws don't apply um, always to this, to all groups of people in all geographic areas uh, and so that's why that exists so anyway I say all that to say, like, there have been times in the past, uh, Trent Horn was talking about this on his podcast, where um, in the 40s, the, it, beca it became a law that people had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and, or, or, you know, salute or whatever it is um, in schools. Three years later, the Supreme Court overturned their own decision and said, we realize this is not right because it's not in the Constitution. Like, it's not something that they had permission to do. So this is why this draft opinion has come out saying that it is likely that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. It does not mean that there's going to be a ban on abortion federally. What it means is that the ability for someone to access abortion in a particular state will be up to that state's legislature and that the state and the voters in that state will vote on it. It's not like no one voted on Roe v. Wade. Nobody did. The judicial branch, the executive authority that they did not have the right to to, to do. They, they didn't have the right to do that. Like, and I would be saying this about any issue. And there's many other Supreme Court cases where this has happened for a variety of other issues that I would vehemently disagree with as just a civic case, like as a citizen. 
that, no, the government doesn't have the right to do that. And so we, um, this whole idea that this is like leading to, you know, a whole like, I don't know, religious monarchy in the United States and fundamentalist values, you know, overtaking progressive thought or whatever. No, it's, this is just about the constitution and the roles of the different branches of the government. So that's one thing to be able to kind of clarify what is going on in conversations. And then when you ask questions, when you're asking questions to clarify what another person is saying to really determine, does this have to do with what's going on or does this have to do with the issue of abortion itself and why you see it's a fundamental right, why you see it's necessary, why do you see that it is potentially good and to, to ask for evidence of that. And so a question, again, referencing Trent Horn, because he's a very leading apologist in pro-life apologetics, he often uses the question, you know, when it comes to the issue of abortion, to ask people, what are the unborn? For someone to actually define that and then produce evidence, scientific evidence from biologists, embryologists, you know, not just political opinion, but actual evidence that coheres with that. So what are the unborn? Someone who supports abortion would probably say a clump of cells. You're like, well, is it just a clump of cells? Because medical textbooks from, you know, the, um, um, the American Society for, for, you know, doctors or whatever, you know, American Medical Association, that's what's called. All of their textbooks say that, you know, f at the moment of conception, there's the beginning, the earliest stages of a human life. That is the phrasing that is used. That is the earliest stages of a human person. And so, yes, viability is an issue. They're in the womb of the mother. But the same thing is true when a child is born outside of the womb. Viability is still an issue. Like a, a baby is not going to survive on its own. Like it still needs someone to care for it. So geographic location in the body, outside of the body, still doesn't determine personhood if you're looking at viability. But if you look at what a... Uh, um, a zygote is, which is what it is when a sperm and an egg meet and form a new human life, it has a genetic code that is unique. If it is left to develop as it is naturally intended to develop, it will continue to develop into what we know and can visualize as a human person. So you grade that back and you define, you say, where is the moment when that human person's life begins? And the point where there no longer is present those things that distinctly make up a human life, if you go into reverse, is the moment of conception. Right before that, no human life. Right after that, human life. Like, that's just how it is, you know? And if you look at the genetic biological markers of life, the definitions of what those things are, then that's what it is. You know, there's no way around that scientifically, biologically. And so there's a way in which you can argue for the invalidity of certain arguments for abortion without even using religion, scripture, you know, anything, God, faith, whatsoever. You can look just to science and say, like, what are the unborn? And be able to show using scientific evidence, scientific studies, language in textbooks, papers uh, from the American Medical Association, from different associations in America of doctors, of biologists, um, that this is what a fetus is. It's a, a name for, or an embryo, a name for the earliest stages of a human life. And so if you're to put a human being from the very end of their life to the very beginning of their life on a poster, kind of like that evolution of man poster, you would have like, you know, senior citizen, adult, young adult, if you're going backwards, uh, teenager, adolescent, um, you know, child, toddler, infant, newborn, and then it would be down to fetus, embryo, zygote, you know, single cell, 
um, at the moment of single-celled zygote at the moment of conception. Like that's just the, the spectrum of human life from earliest stage of development to the latest stage of development. Uh, and so there's no scientific way around that. Everything around the issue of abortion is emotional language about um, what I'm allowed to do with my body or what I'm allowed to do with my life. Um, and so then you can get into arguments of like liberty and license, like let's use this common phrase for abortion. Well, first of all, I want to make this other point. When you, when you talk about what are the unborn and what can you do to the unborn, if you can establish that the unborn are persons, then you would just say, okay, is it appropriate to do what you would do to a fetus or an embryo? Is it appropriate to do that to a two-year-old? Because a two-year-old is still on an early stage of a development of a human person. You know, they are a human person, but they're at an early stage of development. And if they're left on their own, without the ability for someone to change them, feed them, provide things for them, communicate with them, because they can't, I mean, two-year-olds can start to communicate, but like even a one-year-old, you know, um, they will be left for dead. They will not survive on their own, except in very rare, weird circumstances where you hear about the stories of children being lost in the woods and surviving, you know, um, using their innate survival instincts. But naturally, that would not happen, especially with a newborn, you know, or an infant. So most people agree that a six-month-old is a person. You know, you can't abort a six-month-old. Um, and so if you can't do it to a six-month-old, you shouldn't be able to do it to, you know, um, a six month old in the womb, you know, who's been in the womb for six months and you take a scan of it, looks like a baby, moves like a baby, has all the parts of a baby, is, you know, fully as developed as it would need to be. If it were born, it would still be viable with the help of medical attention. Just like at times we, though viable human beings, need the help of medical attention to survive. It's the same thing, you know, just because they're a child uh, or a baby doesn't mean that any of those rules or approaches to preserving life change or determine whether or not they're a person. So language may then come out like, well, it's my body, it's my choice. And I just, I can't stand that phrase because it's so dumb. Like you cannot do whatever you want with your body. It's not the law. Like I can't go, you know, run around naked. I can't go jump off a bridge. People will intervene legally to prevent me from doing those things or it will be legally a crime. I can't take my body, get it super drunk, put it behind the vehicle of a car and do something that will affect the body of other people. And what an abortion does is it says, my bodily autonomy matters more regardless of how other people's bodies are affected, even including the body of the child who is inside that body. And so whatever scenario you compare it to, you cannot do whatever you want with your body if it inhibits your own safety and health or if it inhibits or infringes upon the safety, health, or rights of others. You can't. That's the law. In every other issue, you cannot do that. And so the same logic legally should apply to abortion, even though it is a very emotional issue um, because it involves the intimacy of sex, the, you know, the change of a person's body, and so forth. Um, but... The logic of the argument doesn't change. Um, I think another thing then to rectify is, you know, why are people getting abortions? And if you look at the statistics for abortions, even the statistics plan, uh, that are provided by Planned Parenthood in their own statistical, um, you know, branch, 99% um, of abortions are out of convenience, meaning a woman who does not want a child that she freely, and con uh, freely created and consented to the act of sex in which that life was created. Okay, less than one percent of abortions are due to things like rape, incest, or the medical help uh, or the the 
uh, health of the mother, like extreme medical or dire need. Now, I have a big problem with abortion advocates saying that what about rape or incest? Because they're basically making rape and incest victims poster children for their desire to have abortion available for their own convenience. And that, I think, is a huge injustice. Uh, rape victims and incest victims have been through enough. Rape victims who get abortions, um, they report that their abortions often feel like second rapes because what, it, what was the rape? It was an invasive experience in a very intimate part of their body. What is the abortion? Another invasive surgical experience in that same exact part of their body. Like, it's a traumatic thing. And so it doesn't do any, it doesn't help the mother. It, it provides a, what might seem like an easy escape or sweeping under the rug of something very traumatic that needs to be brought to justice, that needs to be healed. And when you have an abortion in that kind of scenario, all the evidence is gone. You cannot then, you don't have the DNA evidence to potentially convict your attacker or the person in your family who's done this to you. Like all of that disappears and it makes it even easier culturally for attackers to get away or instigators, manipulators to get away with these different acts because they know that there is just a situation that they can strong arm a victim into or threaten them until they get it. And because of how easy it is to get an abortion, I mean, you can be like, you know, 12 or 13 in some states and get an abortion without parent consent. Um, it's not difficult for these things to get swept under the rug and for then you to be left with no evidence and no one to believe you. And that's a huge injustice. And so, yes, as, as awful and difficult as it would be to be the victim in one of those scenarios, it would be even more awful to pack more trauma on an already traumatized person. Whereas carrying a baby to term and allowing life to come from a situation that very much felt like death has been reported by many women who have been victims of such crimes to be a very empowering thing, just like facing their attackers in court, though difficult, has been transformed to a very healing and empowering experience. And then those children can be subject to safe haven laws, drop them off at a local firehouse, you can give them up for adoption, so on and so forth. It doesn't change the whole trajectory of your life. Being pregnant for nine months doesn't change the trajectory of your life. You can still do your job. You can still work. Like, you know, it's not this giant, you know, huge, awful inconvenience. It is, I mean, it does, taxing on your body it is very inconvenient in one sense, but it's, it's not like your entire life radically changes in the way that it does then when you have the child and your whole routine, your whole, you know, all of that begins to change. So all of that to be kept in mind in these different arguments. Again, I'm, I have not appealed to religion, to the Bible, to what the church teaches, nothing. These are just logical arguments that can be used when we talk about abortion. Um, and so we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. We shouldn't use traumatized people as victims for our desire for abortion out of convenience. And we talk about the medical health of a mother. Uh, there is actually a principle that the church uh, supports or allows called the principle of double effect, that if a mother is in a dire need um, of, or is in a dire health situation, I'm sorry, dire health situation where she is going to die and the baby is going to die, or there's, uh, there's um, actually, let me be more clear, where the baby is going to die, and as a result, it will create a complication where the mother's um, health is threatened, then medicine can intervene to allow the natural death or um, stillborn or miscarriage of the child that was going to happen anyway to happen in a more safe manner so that the life of the mother will be preserved. So in most instances, 
the dire medical necessity of the mother can be dealt with in a way that is morally justified. That does not require like the type of abortion that someone would get just out of convenience or because this might be hard or this might delay a certain treatment that you can have. Part of being a parent is sacrifice. And so that just comes with the territory. And even though those things might be unexpected, um, you know, not everything in life is easy. Sometimes we have to undergo those different trials for the people we love, for our children. Um, and then lastly, <laughs> recognizing like if 99% of abortions are out of convenience, like people need to then, if like if you're harping on my body, my choice, you had a choice when you used your body to commit the act of sex, which we all know we learned from middle school biology, the natural consequence of is a baby. Like you know that, you've learned that. And even if you're using birth control or protection, like we all know and we're all told all through school in sexual education programs, those things are never 100% effective. So every time you enter into that act, you are always risking that outcome, always. It's always a reality. In fact, if a person is on, I heard the statistic, if a person is on birth control for 10 years, there's, a, I think some, I think at least a 40% chance that they will get pregnant in those 10 years being on birth control. I want to say it was actually 70%, but I'm lowballing it because I think it was, it could have been 40, but, um, I, the statistic might actually be 70%, but still that's a huge likelihood. 40% is still pretty big. You know, uh, that's w almost one in every two people, two out of every five people who are on birth control for 10 years will get pregnant statistically. Like that's just, that's it. So there's no surefire way to prevent that. Like we know that is the natural consequence of sex. That is how our bodies are naturally ordered. And so if we don't want to get pregnant, then we should not be entering into the sexual act. Like that's what logic would dictate. But because we want to do what we want with our bodies, regardless of how it affects other people or even ourselves, we think we can enter in these things. And then the government should pay for the consequences. The taxpayer should pay for the consequences. And that should be an inherent right. No, that doesn't happen with anything else. You know, can you imagine like if it was something else, like a crime that somebody committed, and you like you go into a house and you commit a crime, but you like stub your toe and the, the government like then has to like compensate you and pay for all of your medical bills and all of this stuff. And, you know, if you, you didn't get what you wanted or, you know, I went to jail and I lost out on work. So now I can sue the government for that money that I would have had working because I made this choice and now the government has to deal with it. No, like that it makes no sense. OK. So anyways, all of that being said, one of my I think mo one of the most effective ways I've been able to talk about abortion with people. Those are just some things to be aware of. I think in the language that is used as you're listening to provoke asking questions and then to point out certain uh, failures in logic with some of the points that are made by those who support um, abortion. However, I think the best thing that we can do, again, find the setting of the, of the conversation on the phone or in person, seek to understand the other person, really listen and ask questions, and then try and find a common ground. And I guarantee you the common ground that you will find, because it's a common ground that I always find, is that both sides believe what they believe because they want to honor the life, the health of the mother. They believe in women's health. That's something that's used, a language that's used all the time by people who support um, abortion. And to show like we who have this um, approach to not supporting abortion, we don't support it because we honor women's health. And then to cite certain studies. In fact, there's a study that I'll link to in the show notes of this episode from September 2nd, 2011. This was the largest, most definitive analysis of the mental health risks associated with abortion um, that's ever been done. 
It was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, very prestigious journal, uh, by Priscilla Coleman, a PhD, uh, who's um, of Bowling Green State University, and examined 22 different studies published between 95 and 2009 involving over 875,000 women, of whom over 163,000 had abortions. So this is a huge sample size, okay? So they take into account all of the you know mental health problems and ramifications that they study things like anxiety depression alcohol use and misuse marijuana use suicidal ideation and here's what they found in their analysis that women who have had an abortion have an 81 percent higher risk of subsequent mental health problems compared to women who have not had an abortion women who have have had an abortion have a hundred and thirty eight percent higher risk of mental health problems uh, compared to women who've given birth Women who've had an abortion have a 55% higher risk of mental health problems compared with women uh, who even had an unplanned pregnancy who then gave birth. Okay, so it doesn't matter if it was planned or unplanned. And then women with a history of abortion have higher rates of anxiety, 34% higher, 37% higher rates of depression, 110% higher rates of alcohol use or misuse, 230% higher rates of marijuana use, and 155% higher rates of suicidal behavior. And they increased their likelihood to have second and third abortions down the line. Uh, and that didn't even study other things like further sexual promiscuity or you know other things like that. And so think about that. Does that, to be able to present that to someone and say, does that sound like a healthy life for a woman? Increased rates of Mental health problems, anxiety, depression, alcohol misuse or abuse, marijuana abuse, suicidal behaviors. Does that sound like the life that we should be creating and encouraging women to have? No, it doesn't. And so because abortion directly leads and contributes to that, and it is invasive surgical procedure, that there are so many other statistics too about how it almost always, I believe 80% or higher of the time, leaves some kind of lasting mark, scarring, or permanent damage to the mother that could affect her fertility or her ability to have children in the future. And that because of the nature of how abortions are performed, they can almost never fully remove any sign of the child that was in the womb. And so studies have shown that they will find cells of previously aborted children in the bodies of later born children from the same mother. That that child goes on living in some sense cellularly in the body of another child. And they did a sociological or psychological study where a lot of those children reported feeling like there was something missing, that they had a missing sibling, that they kind of inherently knew that. You know, I, I don't have the study to quote there, but there's things you could look up. But I will directly quote this study because I think it shows a, it's a huge sample size and it shows such a good correlation. I mean, unfortunate correlation, but good for the argument's sake of the difficulty with supporting abortion if you really support women's health. That that is not something that we can really justify. Um, I'm trying to think of any kind of final points. Beyond that, you know, what if there are no abortions? Abortions will all be unsafe. There'll be these back alley abortions. People use that phrase back alley abortions and use these images of like rusty hangers and things being like that. That's not where that phrase comes from. Back alley abortions comes from uh, doctor's offices who were licensed doctors, licensed physicians who secretly allowed women to have abortions in their safe, healthy facilities by allowing them through the back door of the alley after hours. That's where that phrase comes from. So they weren't unsafe in these like seedy areas. Most of the unsafe abortions that happen in the world happen in developing countries. And that's because women do not have access to healthcare uh, and other things like that. We'll get criticized. I saw a great tweet from a priest um, that was shared about like, 
um, you know, people criticizing the church, like if you don't want abortions, then you have to support, you know, uh, maternity leave and, you know, infancy care and, you know, getting them diapers and ultrasounds and all of these other things. And that is all true. Yes, we need to make sure that we are providing for those needs. We have plenty of local pregnancy clinics here that we support. Obria clinics, if you know about them. There's so many other women's houses and shelters for things like this, if you didn't know about that. So if you know someone who's in a crisis pregnancy, they have a need, send them you know, to someone who works for the church. Send them, you know, send them my information. I will get them the information that they need if they're in this area of Orange County or the diocese. There's an office for life or social justice or something in most dioceses, uh, they will have those local resources for them. Uh, pregnancy clinics, you know, where they can get free resources, ultrasounds, health care, health information, education, baby classes, stuff like that. But this priest tweeted, um, you know, how about you go to Planned Parenthood and you ask for um, ultrasounds, prenatal care, diapers, uh, maternal support, maternal, all these other things that they ask for from the church and see what you get other than being offered a brochure about safe sex, birth control, and an abortion, because that's all they provide, you know? And so you can, there can be criticism on both sides all we want, but if we look at the issue for how it is and who's really helping, and if we're really honoring the health of women, then we have to take a stand on this issue because this issue from those statistics really adversely impacts the health of women. And so regardless of your stance on this issue, we really need to look at all of that and say, is this a viable thing to be supporting? You know, I know there are plenty of awful situations that have been out there, stories of women who've had abortions, even women who might even celebrate their abortion because it led to financial freedom or whatever it might be. And I read those stories. And as a parent, I just think like, I know so many people who regret their abortions. I don't know a single person who regrets any one of their children, at least no sane person. And so to negate that because you want to get all this money and have financial freedom or whatever, like what, does, what is that? Is that really going to bring you happiness in life? Like I would rather be dirt poor and in debt at the end of my life with a beautiful family and relationships than alone and rich and financially free. You know, like that's just not what life is about. Like you can't take it with you, you know. Um, but we will we will rejoin and see those people uh, in heaven, hopefully one day. Um, but I, yeah, so there's all this language out there. If there's more things that people bring up that you're like, I don't know how to handle this or I don't really know how to address this argument, um, try to always look at it logically. You know, I heard once one argument where someone's like, if you were in, a, you know, you're a Catholic, if you were in a health clinic and there was a child there, um, who was a, a child, a human person, and there was a refrigerator with like a thousand frozen embryos in it. Which one would you sh save if you could only save one if the building was about to explode or burning down? And it's, it's a lose-lose uh, kind of scenario that's been, that was created for an argument's sake to show that like Christians aren't going to honor the fact that like a thousand embryos is a thousand lives, but there's a kid there that is one life and they'll probably want to save the kid. And to be able to say logically, like, look, when is this situation ever going to happen, first of all? Um, if I was really in the situation, I wouldn't know that I only have time to save one. I would try and save both. Would I even know that there was a refrigerator there with a thousand embryos in it? I don't know. I would react, probably save the kid if I saw that, probably try and save both, have the kid help me push that thing out, who knows, or run back in and try and do some combination of both. That would be the reality. You cannot create these situations to just get the answer that you would hope for or expects you can criticize and detract from your opponent's argument. That's called a, uh, a straw man argument where you're like not even giving them legs to stand on. Okay. So um, anyway, 
you'll hear a lot of that language out there. If you hear more arguments, you don't know how to address them, send them my way. Maybe we can do a follow-up episode on this, but I wanted to equip you with just some basic language to use and some basic approaches on like, try and avoid doing this online. Try and make sure you're listening, seeking to understand so that you can find a common ground, most likely around women's health or personal autonomy or rights, all things that we as believers in Jesus Christ and members of the Catholic Church all uh, believe in. That we believe in, you know, personal rights and responsibilities, one of the Catholic social teachings, components of Catholic social teaching, that there are certain inherent rights that everyone deserves, that we all have the right to liberty, we all have the right to um, life, uh, we should, we have the right to access to health care and to be healthy and live healthy lives that are whole, um, and to then show we have this, and let me tell you how abortion is directly contradictory to this, and then call into question that truth that you've both agreed on is your common ground and see if it, you know, produces any realization that, oh my gosh, maybe I don't really know what this argument is. Um, so anyways, there's probably much more could be said. I don't want to go too far into it. It's a very important issue, but I think the important thing is that we're having these conversations. We're having them in the right way. Try and avoid doing this online, but use online as a means to maybe stand for what you, you know, believe in. So, you know, if you post on stories, that would be great. You know, when you when you put a post out there and just let anyone comment on it because of hashtags and friends of friends, it turns into this just madness and mess. And people who are trying to defend you will then suddenly get berated by these strangers. And it just turns into this awful, you know, um, just exercise in, in human sin and vice and on both sides. And so I would advise you, if you do post about it, disable comments, invite people to direct message you, talk to you on the phone in person. But stand up for the issue to invite that conversation to happen. Share it in your stories. If you see someone else post about them, don't do the sarcastic, passive-aggressive thing and try and argue with them online. Um, you can comment and say, like, I actually disagree with you, but I'd love to hear your point of view. And if anyone else wants to, you know, engage in a conversation about this, direct message me and then direct message that person. So there's something in the comments, something about to that person. People can say then what they want about you. They don't know any reason why you disagree. They might assume things and say really dumb things about you, but who cares? Like... They, if you don't engage it, it's kind of like a bully. Like if you don't give them the satisfaction of knowing that it affects you, like you're, you're free of the effect of it. Like, you know, you don't have to worry about it. And then the people who will bite, who really might want to have a civil conversation or understand where you're coming from, they will. And the people who don't, you're not going to convince them anyway. They're already so angry, so upset, so convinced, you know, that it's going to take something else, you know? And so maybe sharing a resource, a video, something, but again, trying to, uh, invited into a place where real discourse and dialogue can happen. And even though it is heated or animated because people are passionate about their thoughts on this, and they should be because it's an important issue, um, that it's done so in a way that's constructive for an actual conversation to happen and not waiting days in between copy and pasting ridiculous links or, you know, non, you know, people have all the time in the world when they're online to just look up on Google, like what study proves my point. But if you're there with a person, they really have to know, like, this is what I believe and why I believe it. And it calls into question, like, well, if you don't have evidence for that, why do you believe it? And it, it really can shake people or really confirm in people that like, all right, this is the right thing. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Seek to understand, ask questions, try and come at it from a logic, reason, scientific point of view uh, if faith is not a common ground element. If faith is a common ground element, I mean, you have that much more evidence, you know, about Jesus calling the children to himself, 
you know, Jeremiah 1.5, all of these other, you know, verses that talk about God calling us from conception or from the womb, that he created us, that he's our father, that all life has value, and so forth. But I hope that gives you just some kind of basis for how do we deal with this cultural moment? How do we do it with grace? How do we do it logically, intelligently? How do we know the issue that's actually going on, why this is overturned, be able to educate people in that? And then when it comes to actually discussing the issue, to really pick apart unhelpful language from both sides, look at everything logically, find a common ground, and really have evidence to support your arguments because likely the other side is just regurgitating the echo chamber of stuff that they've heard passed around on the media. And a lot of that stuff sounds good. We stand for women's health. We stand for having the right to choose, for having our right to privacy. Those all sound like good things, and they are, but when they're distorted to apply to something that is damaging and that has a lot of danger and a lot of evil associated with it, um, then it, it becomes very destructive. And so I want to encourage you if this is something that you feel like you needed a kick in the pants to really stand up for and say like, hey, this is what I believe and um, I'm willing to start talking to people about it, even if you don't have all the answers to just really, even if the whole point of a conversation is just, I just want to hear where you're coming from because I don't, I don't get and agree with the other side and maybe... Um, you know, I could have better conversations with you and the other side and understand your arguments better if we just sat down and talked about it. And maybe you don't arrive at anything different or you don't even propose any counterpoints or questions. It's just a learning experience for you. I still think that would be incredibly fruitful. And that can show someone on the other side that you're willing to listen and that you're not this oppressive, patriarchal, traditional person trying to strong arm them into some alternative belief system. You know, it can just show that like, no, I, you're a human being, and I know that God loves you, even if you disagree on this issue, even if you radically support it or seek it out. Um, you're still a child of God, and I'm going to treat you like that, and I'm going to try and understand where you're coming from as best I can. And if the opportunity presents itself, maybe point out some places where the logic is flawed or where we agree and where we disagree and why, using your own personal experience and good evidence and logic to do so. So anyways, I feel like I'm rambling, saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, but it's an important thing to to talk about. So I hope you will. Uh, if you want further issues on this, um, Persuasive Pro-Life, great book by Trent Horn. He's coming out with the second edition. He's had, also had a recent podcast or two on this issue because of the, the news. His uh, podcast is Council of Trent, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, like counseling, Council of Trent podcast. Um, and there's so many other great resources, the Catholic Answers, um, you know, things like that. So just any kind of apologetical tool that you can use um, for pro-life arguments is just really, really helpful. So uh, I just want to encourage you. I actually think there's also a 20 questions and answers pamphlet from Catholic Answers all, all on the issue of abortion as well and probably many other resources. So uh, if you have other resources, send them my way, and uh, I'll include uh, whatever links that I can find uh, to that stuff in the show notes. I know I have the one with the statistics. And, uh, yeah, I hope it's a benefit to you. Share this uh, information, this podcast, with someone else who you think might benefit from it. And with that being said, um, Pray for me as I pray for you, and I'll see you in the Eucharist. God bless. Oh, it's called the sting. The 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 joy junk Jesus, the song, the things, the things that you use in podcasts musically. They're called stings. I remembered. Bye.